The Power of One is brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, available only on Amazon Prime Video. One spring day in 2007, a man named Bradley Birkenfeld quietly left his home in Geneva, Switzerland, and boarded a flight for Zurich. He'd fly from there to Boston, then to Washington, D.C. He made the trip in secrecy. He said later he was so wary of being discovered, he spoke to his American lawyers from payphones and hotels. Birkenfeld was going to Washington to meet with officials from the U.S. Department of Justice. His legal team had introduced him as a nameless, secret client who had sensitive information that would be of great interest to the U.S. government. It sounds like the start of a mob informant saga. But Bradley Birkenfeld was a banker. He worked in a different kind of opaque, secretive sector, a mostly legal one that deals with vast sums of cash, few questions asked. He worked for UBS, the Union Bank of Switzerland, one of Switzerland's most respectable investment banks and the largest private wealth manager in the world. He owned a chalet in a Swiss resort town. He wore a $25,000 watch, an Audemars Piguet. He handled the assets of billionaires, sometimes literally. He once moved diamonds for a client, bringing them into the U.S. inside a tube of toothpaste. And then he walked into a room in the American Department of Justice and told officials there everything he'd seen. His revelations would echo far beyond the halls of American government. Bradley Birkenfeld held the keys to dozens of undeclared bank accounts and enough information to crack open the confidential relationship between Swiss bankers and U.S. tax evaders. UBS ultimately paid $780 million to resolve the investigation, admitted to criminal wrongdoing, and closed the unit where Birkenfeld... Birkenfeld was the first person to blow the whistle on Swiss banking practices that have for decades sheltered the bashful wealth of the world's uber-rich and its uber-criminal. His testimony helped the U.S. recover billions of dollars in unpaid taxes. It led to his former employer, UBS, paying the American government $780 million in fines. And that was just the beginning of a dramatic tale with massive ramifications for Swiss banking and for Birkenfeld himself. Today is a great day for whistleblowers. Today is a great day for all the honest Americans out there who work their job, pay their taxes. $104 million payout from the IRS because of his whistleblowing. He's entitled to a piece of... But that wasn't all he got from the U.S. government. He was also given a prison sentence. I thought I'd do the right thing, and I thought my government would embrace me, not attack me. Sure, I knew the Swiss government hated me. Sure, I knew UBS hated me. Sure, I knew the Swiss banks hated me. God forbid, I thought my own government wouldn't exile me. And here's the, here's the other kicker. I was the only banker to go to jail in the entire financial crisis. Put that in perspective for a moment. You are listening to The Power of One, a podcast devoted to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people who changed their world and ours. I'm your host, Sarmishta Subramanian. This week, we bring you the remarkable story of Bradley Birkenfeld. He's the whistleblower who shattered Swiss banking secrecy, the hero hailed by groups like the Government Accountability Project, or depending on whom you ask. He was a rogue, part of a system that helped Americans evade millions of dollars in taxes. The IRS cut him a check, a whopping $104 million, 
the largest cash reward it's ever given to a whistleblower. The U.S. Department of Justice sent him to prison. Here's how American lawyer and whistleblowing expert Michael Sullivan puts it. The magnitude of, of what Mr. Birkenfeld exposed was, uh, was breathtaking, really. I mean, his information really allowed the, the government to uh, blow the lid off the whole system of uh, Swiss banking secrecy. And yet the uh, Department of Justice had chosen to prosecute him, and that's, that's rare and typically doesn't happen. Almost as famous as Switzerland's mountain resorts and its fine chocolates are its banks. Massive, double-walled fortresses that hold billions of dollars in global assets. Here's Bradley Birkenfeld now. I, I guess my statement to you would be is when everything's right, there's something wrong. I think that goes, that goes to the heart of Switzerland because, you know, the trains were on time. The, there was no pollution. There was no crime. Uh, the food was excellent. You you could buy beautiful luxury watches or mink coats or nice sports cars and so on and so forth. So you begin to ask yourself, how can a country like this survive and attract so much wealth? Switzerland, of course, is about 7.5 million people when I was there. Geneva was about 200,000 people, and there were 130 banks in Geneva. So you can get an idea of the scope and scale of what we're talking about. 18 years ago, his goal was to work for one of those banks. He was in his early 30s. He had a degree in economics from an American military college, Norwich University. And he'd worked as a currency trader at places like State Street Bank and Trust in Boston, near where he grew up. He arrived in Geneva and took a master's program in business, then landed a job at Credit Suisse, then Barclays, and in 2001, he went to work for UBS. He was one of few foreigners allowed into the inner sanctum of Swiss banking which is a surprisingly tactile world. At Credit Suisse, the bank vaults live 18 feet below the ground and house 3,500 safes in 10 different sizes. They hold an assortment of assets, from stock certificates to gold bars. Bars of gold. Physical, yes, absolutely, or platinum. Very rare coins that they would put in there, or actual cash, physical cash. And Even UBS client country? records, at least in Birkenfeld's time, were things you could hold in your hands. They were small cards kept in wooden racks. Each one listed a client's name, address, account numbers, and passwords. As the investigative journalist Michael Bronner reported at the time, it wasn't unlike an old library card catalog system. The job of the bankers was to serve those clients in whatever way they needed. Here's what Birkenfeld told 60 Minutes back in 2010. People would ask you to make purchases for them possibly maybe a car or a chalet, uh, possibly uh, a nice watch. So you would also cater to the client in that regard and then deliver it to them upon their choosing. But it was equally important to acquire new clients. We had 19,000 clients, $20 billion in assets for the U.S. desk alone. And you had people there who were in two roles. You were either a hunter or a gatherer. You were either someone who went marketing to see existing and potential clients, or you were someone who just took care of the house back home in Switzerland. And I was the head of business development for North America, which included Canada. What I thought was important was, was to interface with my Canadian colleagues, number one, 
but also see about existing clients to bring more money and introduce us to other potential clients. And how did you do that? Well, you, if you hang with rich people, you generally will meet rich friends. The places rich people hang can be a lot of fun. Art fairs like Art Basel in Miami, regattas and other sporting events, and fine dining restaurants and shows. All were useful emollients in luring millions of dollars in business toward the bank's coffers. The trips to North America were lavish and frequent. U.S. Customs records later analyzed by a Senate subcommittee confirmed that over five years, a group of 20 UBS Swiss bankers traveled to the U.S. about 300 times to go to events attended by potential clients. Here's Birkenfeld again. For instance, they said, um, bring in net new money. That means every year you've got to bring in 20 million, 30 million new money. And from that, you generate revenue. So it's impossible to meet those criteria unless you're aggressively marketing. So you had to go out and push products and, and, and open accounts and all that kind of stuff. And Birkenfeld did. He traveled to L.A. and Miami, New York and Boston, Toronto, Chicago, Montreal. He signed on new accounts. He helped an American property developer hide $200 million in assets. He took bundles of checks from other clients. It was a delicate dance. Technically, there aren't many reasons for someone living and working in Canada or the U.S. to open a UBS account in Switzerland. If they like Swiss banking, there are UBS branches here in North America. There was one well-used reason to have an account in Geneva or Zurich, and it was sketchy to say the least. Also, Swiss bankers aren't licensed to give investment advice in North America. So Birkenfeld says UBS bankers would travel here carrying business cards without the UBS logo. They'd use codes to disguise client information or take encrypted laptops that security officials couldn't read. And what people would do is they would um, either FedEx or bring with them, but most likely FedEx to a UBS office, account statements and product offerings. And then they ultimately got sophisticated and started putting it on encrypted laptops, which I refused to take. So this was a real um, clandestine operation. And they knew what they were doing, and they promoted it and condoned it. This was a uh, well-oiled machine that covered the continent. Courts in both the U.S. and France later confirmed Birkenfeld's descriptions of these practices. But one afternoon in 2005, something changed for Birkenfeld. He had just come into the office when a colleague directed him to a memo he'd found buried in the company's server. In that memo, it said you can no longer bring account opening forms. You can't cold call clients. You can't bring investment products. So if I'm coming over to see you in Toronto to, uh, next week, hypothetically as a client, and I can't bring that stuff, you're like, Brad, well, yeah, it's nice to see you, and we can have a dinner or a drink or whatever or a cigar or who knows what. But if I can't get to the core of where we're going to make money for me and the bank, I'm not going to make my figures, and I can't help you open this account easily, it's sort of counterproductive, right? What you have to realize is, is when you see a document like this with no logo of the bank on it, that's the first thing that caught my eye. I said, where the hell's the logo? The second question is, why weren't we told about it? The third question is, why weren't we trained on it? What struck Birkenfeld was the gap between what he and his colleagues were asked to do every day, what they'd been trained to do, and the official rules filed away in some digital corner of the bank. I remember the day I read it, I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was smoking a cigar at my desk, 
And I took it, put it in my briefcase. And when I left the bank that night, I said, it's over. I know it's over. Two months later, Birkenfeld resigned. He says he quit on principle, though it's hard to think it was just the letter of the law that moved him. This was a guy who hadn't blinked at transporting diamonds for a client in a tube of toothpaste. For the record, Birkenfeld says it was just a convenient container. But the principle in question here may have been the bank's apparent callousness toward its own employees. You can tell by talking to Birkenfeld or from reading his memoir, Lucifer's Banker, that he's driven more by an inner personal code than by rules per se. Loyalty, sticking up for his convictions, his team, his friends, those things seem to matter to him. And in his eyes, UBS had broken its end of a bond. That became apparent to me that it was CYA, if you will, cover your ass for the bank, but not for the bankers, not for the clients, and not for the shareholders. And I come from a background where I grew up with older brothers. I went to military school. I used to play football and hockey and all that kind of stuff. That's not to say that I'm a tough guy or anything like that. I'm just a principled guy. But more importantly, I looked around the room at my colleagues, most of them married with children. I said, you're going to really put them at risk? These are the people that you have handcuffed with a UBS mortgage, a UBS car loan, a UBS salary, UBS school. You know, you think it's really funny, and it's, it's not funny. And so in the spring of 2007, he took that flight to Washington, D.C. to meet with Department of Justice officials and tell them what he knew. Bradley Birkenfeld is not exactly a model whistleblower, if such a paragon of purity and wisdom and virtue even exists. To have information of any value, a whistleblower has to have some proximity to the wrongdoing. Here's Michael Sullivan, a former federal prosecutor, now an Atlanta-based lawyer whose firm specializes in whistleblower cases. As a prosecutor, as an attorney, as an expert witness, he's had a lot of dealings with whistleblower testimony. You need people on the inside who have knowledge of the wrongdoing. Sometimes they're mere witnesses. Sometimes they might be, uh, they might have a minor role or simply be functionaries in a company who know about some other wrongdoing. Sometimes they might have uh, been willing participants or even planned and initiated the wrongdoing. And, and the whistleblower laws try to take that into account. As for temperament, subtlety isn't Birkenfeld's thing. When he wrote a memoir three years ago, he titled it Lucifer's Banker. His author photo is a close-up of him, grinning, cigar in mouth, showing off a trim goatee, a luxury watch, and an authentic diamond-studded Super Bowl ring celebrating the New England Patriots. In conversation, he's candid, freely disparaging people who wronged him. It may have been some version of this man who walked into DOJ offices that spring, asking for immunity. And yet the information that he had was top-notch, an unprecedented close-range view of the inside of those Swiss vaults. He could potentially give them client names, phone numbers, the details of how UBS had helped its American clients dodge taxes. And he had documents to back it up. PowerPoint presentations, training manuals. He'd also resigned from UBS and blown the whistle internally, more than a year before going to U.S. officials. But he says that from his first meeting with the prosecutors, Kevin Downing and Karen Kelly, the reception at the DOJ was not exactly warm. They were combative to me. You're not a whistleblower. You're just a tipster. 
or I told them how to get the bankers at the hotels with their mobile phones and their laptops, and you can you can subpoena the hotel records for the phones, like the phone we're on now, and all of that. They said, ah, oh, you watch too much TV, that's Hollywood. They didn't want the truth, just like Canada didn't want the truth, because it affected too many rich and powerful people. In part, Birkenfeld was caught in a red tape tangle. The IRS had an amnesty program, but he had gone to the DOJ. He was looking for immunity first, and they seemed reluctant to promise that before they got client names. The talks stalled for months, with the clock ticking. Birkenfeld knew that if the bank's clients caught wind of the fact that a former UBS banker was meeting with justice officials, they'd quickly move their money elsewhere. His whistleblowing would accomplish nothing, and he'd have put himself at personal risk. So he also went to the Securities and Exchange Commission, the IRS, and later that year, the U.S. Senate where he gave a deposition to the Subcommittee on Homeland Security. In April 2008, his lawyer went back to the DOJ, offering Birkenfeld's cooperation in exchange for amnesty. Their counteroffer? He was arrested. Hey, I'm Kyle Fulton. I'm the producer of Power of One, and I wanted to tell you a bit about the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. He's not your typical hero, but the political fate of the nation rests in his hands. John Krasinski returns as the titular CIA officer in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. The latest season takes the former analyst to South America to solve a global conspiracy that spans the UK, Russia, Venezuela, and back home in the US. Follow along the action-packed mission in the new season, now available on Prime Video. It was the spring of 2008, a year after Birkenfeld had first come to the Department of Justice with an offer to blow the whistle on one of Switzerland's largest banks. He'd shown them insider banking documents, and in doing so, he'd run afoul of Swiss laws. And now, he'd been arrested in the United States. Birkenfeld pleaded guilty to the loan charge, conspiring to defraud the U.S. government. A federal judge sentenced him to 40 months behind bars. He arrived at the penitentiary with characteristic flair. I actually gave a press conference in front of the prison before I went in. They gave international clients amnesty so they wouldn't be charged. He served two and a half years of that sentence, an experience he's equally glib about. Military school was harder than this. This is, this is laughable. We called it Camp Cupcake because it was such a joke. There was no fence around the prison, and there was no prison cells. There were bunk beds. It was like being in like a sort of a a commune, if you will, you know, okay, yes, our freedom was restricted, but we'd go outside and play softball and play bocce and tennis and all this stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, the taxpayers pay for this. This is what's so ironic. You put the guy in who exposed the largest tax fraud in the world and the taxpayers paying for me to be in jail. He still marvels at the irony and one can understand why. Even after his arrest, Birkenfeld continued to cooperate with U.S. authorities and his testimony set in motion a chain of unprecedented events. Just a few months after he pleaded guilty, a UBS executive was indicted by a federal grand jury in Florida. 54-year-old Raul Weil is the highest-ranking Swiss banker to be arrested in the United States, and prosecutors are seeking to paint him A few months after that, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, UBS paid that fine of $780 million to the U.S. government. It admitted to helping 17,000 Americans evade taxes, and it made amends. So the idea that UBS, one of Switzerland's largest banks, 
would agree to turn over information on thousands of American tax cheats would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. Tonight, you'll More than 14,000 well-heeled Americans, suddenly nervous, tottered over to the IRS to claim voluntary amnesty. The IRS recovered more than $5 billion in unpaid taxes. And UBS's problems went far beyond the United States. The French government launched an investigation. Swiss bank UBS faces a fine of $5.1 billion for aiding tax fraud. The penalty set by a French court on Wednesday. The tax fraud court in Paris found the bank guilty of helping wealthy French clients stash undeclared funds in Swiss accounts through aggravated money laundering. And the consequences for Switzerland went far beyond UBS. The Swiss government was forced to change its tax treaties with an ever-growing list of countries. Swiss bankers could no longer guarantee their most important product, secrecy. In 2005, there were 179 private banks in Switzerland. By 2017, that number had fallen to 112. Banks have vanished either gone bankrupt or merged or whatever, but still they cannot keep up with the total cost of compliance, the real estate, the salaries that are very high when you can't sell secrecy. What that secrecy has allowed and enabled for almost eight decades has itself been something of an open secret. Evidence still dribbles out about Swiss complicity with the Germans during the Second World War. Uh, we have documents confirming that the Swiss were actively and directly involved in shipping gold for Nazis. Uh, these documents show that the Swiss claim... That was U.S. Senator Alphonse D'Amato, chair of the Senate Banking Committee in the late 90s. And there is no shortage of modern villains who use the same secretive systems to launder funds obtained from the worst crimes against people. Shallop dealings with one of the worst rebel groups in Africa, processed through a bank in Geneva. HSBC continued to protect... ...are listed as clients of HSBC Swiss Bank. Money from drug trafficking was also found in the bank's accounts. And even weapons dealers are said to be clients, including top-level financial backers of the terrorist group Al-Qaeda. Those were some of the ties uncovered by Swiss Leaks, a 2015 collaboration between 135 reporters in 45 countries. They analyzed masses of data leaked by a former HSBC employee, Hervé Falciano. Developing countries may be hurt the worst by those secret bank accounts. Swiss Leaks found ties to deadly conflicts and trade in places like Angola and Liberia. But countries like Canada, the US, and France are affected too. They lose billions in revenues to offshore tax havens. So why did it take a Bradley Birkenfeld, and then others like him, to shine a light on those practices? And why have some governments still not taken stronger action? Birkenfeld says he's baffled that Canada, unlike the U.S. or France, didn't sit down with him, even after he contacted the Canada Revenue Agency with information about Canadian clients of UBS. It was a smaller market, but still very lucrative. And then on a per capita basis, it was bigger than the U.S. Because we had $20 billion, and you folks, the Canadian desk, had $5 billion. Now, we have 300 million people, let's just say, rounded down to 300, and you folks have $30 million. And the fact that you folks had $5 billion at UBS, and we had $20 billion, 
makes you wonder and wonder why that the Canadian authorities did nothing. It's like the bearer of bad news. I'm bringing this news, but nobody wants to talk about it. So they come up with some other ridiculous story. Oh, an amnesty. No, you broke the law. These are thousands of people breaking securities and tax laws for decades. Bankers being trained on how to deceive Canadian customs. Onshore bankers from UBS Canada referring clients to the offshore, which is aiding and abetting tax evasion, which is highly illegal. Wire fraud, mail fraud. I can go on. Why hasn't Canada called me up to testify up in Canada? We put that question to the Canada Revenue Agency. A representative told us CRA can't discuss individual cases or confirm whether a person provided information to them. But CRA said in an emailed statement that it issued a number of what it calls unnamed persons' requirements for information. These are judicial authorizations requiring the turnover of information regarding a third party. CRA served UBS Canada with two such orders, in 2010 and 2014. The bank complied. And since 2010, CRA has identified more than $270 million in unreported income related to UBS. Some audits are still ongoing. But questions linger. Has that money been recovered in full? What if the remainder of the $5 billion in UBS accounts cited by Birkenfeld? Are there stiff penalties for those who tried to evade taxes, as there would be for the rest of us? Here's Alain Deneau a political scientist at the University of Montreal and author of the 2015 book Offshore Tax Havens and the Rule of Global Crime. The fiscal and the legal system in Canada and in all Western countries work like a checkpoint on the highway where you should be, you should have to pay. But there's a, a small road for luxury cars that can circumvent the checkpoint. If you're caught and you're a wealthy individual, uh, often the Canadian Revenue Agency will negotiate with you. If you're just a, a small cheater, if you're just a small taxpayer, they'll throw the book at you. You'll have very hard penalties and it will be very hard for, for you to negotiate, to deal with the, the CRA. Wealthy people who bank at UBS are, of course, the infinitesimally thin edge of an enormous wedge. There are dozens of other banks in Switzerland, and there are 80 or 90 Switzerlands in the world. Offshore tax havens that individuals use to evade tax and corporate entities rely on to avoid it, in perfectly legal ways. One of the main problems is that Canadian government made legal to use tax havens. So they always talk about uh, fraud. And the problem today is that fraud was made, was legalized in a certain extent. And that is a, a huge problem. That's why at the end of the year, when you look at what Statistic Canada produced as data, you see that among 
the 10 most important countries where Canadian corporations invest directly, you have six or seven tax havens. So after the USA, the second country in the world where Canadian corporations invest the most isn't China or Germany or the, the United Kingdom or Brazil or France, it's the Barbados. And if, you're, if you go there, you'll only see a few Canadian banks. In fact, for large corporations, Ellen Denol says, leaning on tax havens isn't a matter of a few bad apples. It's the business model. I always compare a tax haven to a mall. I mean, if you go to a mall, you have different type of shops and you have small ones, big ones, one dedicated to olive oil or to soaps and other to gift and books. And it's the same with tax havens. I mean, if you want to, if you're involved in the insurance business, you'll go to Turks and Caicos. And if you care about property rights, you'll go to Ireland. If you want to, the ship industry is related to Liberia or Panama or the oil platform will be registered in the Marshall Islands. The video games will be managed in Montreal. Uh, the mining sector is all related to Canada. Three corporations in the mining sector out of four are registered in Canada worldwide. It's not only about taxation and fiscality, it's about the law. It's about the way corporations are able to circumvent the law as such, whatever they want to do. If you want to uh, to have child working for you for an hour, a dollar a day, you go to Bangladesh. So the idea is to is not to ask yourself as a manager of the a big corporation if what you have in mind to do is illegal, but to find the jurisdiction that will offer you legality for something that is illegal in your own state. A single company may visit several of these shops. Uh, maybe the, the contract will be signed uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, maybe the brand of the company will be registered in Ireland. Uh, certainly the, the office related to taxation will be created in the Bermudas. Tax havens may be about dollars and cents in other words. But their implications are actually quite profound. I worked as a philosopher on the um, evolution of sovereignty, of democracy, of uh, social justice. All the concepts we use to talk about uh, geography and geopolitics and politics and law are being transformed by tax havens. So it's not about using our common vocabulary to describe the situation. It's to see how the situation is changing our vocabulary. The definitions of the words we're using, like words like sovereignty, crime, legality, border, uh, law, uh, changed since 50 years. Because of that, what's law when you can circumvent it? The granular realities, too, are dramatic. What countries like Canada lose year after year to personal tax evasion is grim. What they lose to corporate tax avoidance is head-spinning. The number that's often thrown out is $21 trillion. But Denol says that doesn't begin to cover the real loss. When you see how governments deal with that problem, you see that instead of tackling tax havens, there would be ways to do that. They imitate them. So in 1980... The income tax rate for corporations was at 38% on the federal level only. 
and now it's 15%. So you still lose money there because you lose money when it goes away and you lose money when it stays because you tax it less than uh, you did before. And the third cost in, is related to indebtment because at the end of the year, governments aren't able to balance the budget. So what do they do? They borrow money from financial institutions and corporations that they don't tax anymore. And the fourth cost is that, well, you, you tax always more the middle class and the small businesses that are related to the territory and can't go away. The fifth cost will be the fact that you have spending cuts because government still can't balance the budget, so you'll have less services. And the sixth cost is that the services that are left will have fees. You'll have to pay twice for the services, one as taxpayer and one then as users. So it's impossible when you're you're aware of that to to then give a a, a number. It's, it's not about an amount, it's about the dynamic. We're in a moment in which blows to wealth secrecy keep coming. And it may be tempting to think of Swiss leaks or the Birkenfeld disclosures or the Panama Papers as huge leaps forward. But global money can just as easily find a different port of call. It seems to me so clear that if you want to be serious in that matter, it shouldn't be considered a technical problem, but a political problem. And the problem of tax havens are tax havens themselves. I mean, it's not that complicated to understand. The problem with tax havens is tax havens. Whistleblowers and whistleblower rewards, even ones as big as Birkenfeld's 104 million, are an oddly small response to such an encompassing problem. It's a little like allowing cocaine stores to proliferate in shopping plazas, then paying whistleblowers to rat out the people using them. An alternative would be making cocaine stores illegal. So when, when, when we, we, we see whistleblowers being so instrumental, so uh, important in, in, in the cases where finally we have some data, finally we have some, some clues about what's going on, it shows that states themselves gave up. But that is, for better or for worse, the system in place now. A Forbes magazine article a few years ago quipped that we're approaching the era of the billionaire whistleblower. Whistleblower rewards are a crowded field in the U.S. The IRS, the SEC, the Commodities Exchange, and the Department of Justice each have their own program. The DOJ pays out $400 million a year in rewards a fraction of the money it collects from whistleblower testimony. In one sense, this is a quintessentially American response, to take a high-minded moral impulse like speaking the truth and turn it into a lucrative industry. At the same time, whistleblowers often face retaliation, and some kind of protection is needed, as Michael Sullivan, the whistleblower lawyer, says. So it's a very dangerous thing to open your mouth to uh, speak out against fraud because oftentimes you simply are painting a target on your own back and it can be career suicide. So the, the system of encouraging whistleblowers to come forward and protecting them is essential. Canada has a whistleblower program too, but it's small scale in comparison. As of November 2018, the CRA's program had collected a mere $33.2 million in taxes and penalties. Not surprisingly, 
Many Canadian whistleblowers are reporting wrongdoing to U.S. authorities rather than at home. As for Bradley Birkenfeld, the world's least appreciated whistleblower, he was living in New Hampshire, contemplating his next move, when vindication came in the form of a $100 million reward from the IRS. After a scandal, somebody finally gets rich for doing the right thing. It's NPR's Business News. Birkenfeld lives what sounds like a life of leisure. He speaks at whistleblower conferences and advocates for stronger protections for people who risk their own futures by coming forward. He lives these days in beautiful Malta, ironically enough, one of the world's other 80 or so tax havens. But he's still scathing about the place and the business in which he spent more than a decade. And what happened is that this industry within this country was um, sacred, literally. And many people made their living off of that. Not just the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, the trust officers. And then, of course, the ripple effect, which is the airlines, the hotels, the restaurants, the luxury goods market, and so on and so forth, where people would spend their money there. The stereotype of Switzerland is exactly that. A paradise within Europe, which really is crumbling around them politically and economically. Now it's becoming crystal clear for bankers, lawyers, accountants, regulators, and so forth, and law enforcement that say, wait a minute, why was this going on for so long and no one, everyone knew about it but did nothing about it? That's really the crime here, in my opinion, not just what UBS did. Thanks for listening to The Power of One. Be sure to listen next week when we bring you the story of the woman who reclaimed Mexico City for its residents and is reshaping the megalopolis all over the globe. Most of the newer cities and the megacities are being born in Latin America, in the African continent, in Asia, and they will have problems that are much more akin to our realities than others. And as I mentioned, like, you know, the first world is unfortunately catching up. The Power of One is brought to you by McLean's in partnership with the Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and co-produced by me, Sarmishta Subramanian. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our researcher is Patricia Treble. Michael Friscalanti was a Chase producer on this episode. Audio credit for this episode goes to 60 Minutes and CBS, Nightly Business Report with CNBC, C-SPAN, Associated Press Archives, German broadcaster ARD, DW News, NPR, The Straits Times, and SWI Swiss Info. Special thanks to Stephanie Phillips, Charlie Gillis, Jordan Heath-Rawlings, Annalisa Nielsen, and Milena Boscovic. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. See you next week. Download a new weekly episode of The Power of One, brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, only on Prime Video.